Good morning. Oh, that's about as good as the weather. Um, good morning. That's better. Um, my name's Chris. For those of you who, who don't know me, I, I'm on the pastoral staff here. And um, I'm just, um, it's great for me just seeing people kind of coming back from holiday. I, um, some of you being away, I know some of you are, are heading off. Um, but there's something about being part of the church, I think, which, um, church, we, we, you know this, we don't go to church, right? We don't go to church, we are the church. You know that? We are the church. Which means um, that when we come together, this is only 20% of what we are as a church. Sunday is only 20% of actually everything we do as a church because there are community groups, there are things that people are doing throughout the week, St. Barnabas, uh, connecting with youth. There's, there's lots of things that are going on in the church because church is not just a meeting, it's the people. And it's a people who are gathered in the name of a God who is worthy to be praised. And today we're going to talk about praise. And um, this morning my, my goal is very simple really. I want to lead us to praise. I want to lead us to praise. Um, to praise God, not to praise me, not to praise anybody else, but to praise the one who is worthy of praise. Um, maybe if you just bow your head in prayer for a second. Father, this for me is a huge topic where I feel inadequate. I don't have words, I don't see just how great you are. But I pray this morning you would open my eyes, you would open our eyes to see you, to see your greatness, to see and to praise the one who is worthy to be praised this morning. In your name, amen. So we're finishing off today. We've been looking at a series in the Psalms. And um, if you've been here, if you've not been here, we've been going for about um, eight weeks looking at how we worship in all seasons of life. Today, it seems like we've got one season outside. There are, there are different seasons that we go through. And the Psalms kind of take you on this, on this journey, on this kind of roller coaster of emotions, going from, from um, happiness that we talked about right at the beginning, and then going through all this fear, awe, stress, worry. And it's just this cycle of life that all of us, I think, can relate to, particularly in Hong Kong. Things are constantly changing. Everything's constantly happening. We go up and we go down, the weather goes up and we go down, and that's what life is like. And the Psalms are here to teach us in the roller coaster of life how to worship God. And the really interesting thing about the Psalms is this, the Psalms are specifically organized with a trajectory. There is a direction to the Psalms because they go through all of this stuff in life there's 145, 144 psalms they go through, and then the last five psalms end with praise. And that is deliberate. It's deliberate because the psalms are trying to point you to the fact that whatever season you're going through, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever is happening moment by moment, everything that God brings into your life is ultimately always meant to lead you to praise. That's the purpose of it all. 
And so today I want to look at three just very simple things to, to kind of talk about this. I want to talk about we praise greatness. We praise greatness. But we often live, secondly, with copy greatness. We praise greatness, we live with copiness greatness, and then thirdly, the greatness of God's grace. Okay, so that's where we're going. Three things. But, but before we kind of get into this passage, I just want to say something about praise. Did you know the reason God created you, the reason he chose you, if you're a Christian, the Bible says, is he chose you to praise him. In Ephesians 1, it says, in love, in love, God predestined you. That means he, he thought about you and he chose you. If you're a Christian, he chose you before he made anything else for adoption as sons. That means he brought you into his family, into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And it then says, according to the purpose of his will. If you want to know what God's will is, here it is. The purpose of his will is that you and I and this church is to be for the praise of his glorious grace. That's the whole deal. That's why you and I were created. The reason that you breathe today is to the praise of his glorious grace. The reason God has given some of you kids is to the praise of his glorious grace. The reason you have a job, the reason you're single, the reason you're married, the reason we have air conditioning is for the praise of his glorious grace. That's the deal. That's why God created us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've thought about that, and that sounds a little egocentric of God. I mean, how can a God who says he is so great, he needs nothing, and then turn around and say, well, you've got to praise me, and even creates us to praise him? That sounds it's a little bit like what C.S. Lewis said, like a, an old vain woman seeking compliments. Doesn't that? But, but C.S. Lewis goes on to say, and, and I'm going to quote a, a longest passage, but this is very, very perceptive, what C.S. Lewis says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. He says, all enjoyment overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers. Even sometimes politicians. Although that's not very common in Hong Kong. I had noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The Psalms, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying this, God made you and me to praise him because he 
is the most valuable. He is the most praiseworthy. He is the greatest, most satisfying joy, and he wants us to find enjoyment in him because that is most satisfying. Because what is the most great and valuable thing that you can think of in this world? Because anything you can think of where you put God in the category and he always comes out better. That's why he says, I want you to praise me. But what is praise? What is praise? Praise is exalting, boasting of, speaking highly of deep down what you think is great. It's our natural response to greatness. I don't know what you praise on a regular basis. You know, this week I've been watching the Olympics and um, uh, there's been a certain amount of praise coming out from my mouth because Britain is second in the medal table and my wife is Chinese and we're beating them and that's a great source of joy for me. But we praise what we think is valuable and great. You know Usain Bolt, the 100 meter winner, the, the, one of the greatest athletes ever. Do you know what he said yesterday? After he won his ninth gold medal, he said, there you go, I'm the greatest. Now what is he doing? He's praising what he thinks is great himself, right? And that's what we do all the time, you know. Uh, I've been praising Britain for winning the medals. You know, I'm praising greatness. When I hear people talking about how many steps they did on their Fitbit, they're praising their greatness, if it's more than 5,000. But here when we come to this psalm, David, who writes this psalm, is the king of Israel. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. And when you look at this, he could have said, I am the greatest, and everyone would have agreed with him. But look at the first line. Take, take your bulletin out, follow along. I'm, gonna kind of, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but I want you to pick out some, some key verses here. First verse, he says, I will extol you, not me, you, my God and king. He's saying, I'm not the center of this. My greatness is not from me. It is a gift from a king who is greater, the true king of Israel, God himself. That's the true great king. And godly praise always flows out of this humility of recognizing where you stand before God. And then when you do that, Praise begins to overflow when you see who God really is. I mean, just, just skim over the psalm from me, because this psalm, he's not just telling you to praise, it's like an overflow of praise. Like, look at, the, look at the, the, the verbs for the speeches. He says, verse one, I will extol you, bless you. Verse two, commend your works, declare your mighty acts. Then, um, Verse five, meditate on your glorious splendor. Uh, I'll speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Declare your greatness, that's verse six. Pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Sing aloud of your righteousness, that's verse seven. Give thanks to you, verse 10. Bless you, speak of the glory of your kingdom. Tell of your power, verse 11. Make known your mighty deeds, verse 12. This is joy that is overflowing. He can't hold his mouth. It's gotta come out. This isn't a man like me who, you know, I've been in church a while, and I've, 
I've been taught certain things about praying. I don't know if any of you have heard the, the kind of ACTS um, acronym for how to pray. It kind of goes adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And so what I have often done, I've kind of tried that, and I, I kind of sit down and I go, okay, now I've got to adore God. And I'm like, okay, God, God, you're good. God, you're great. God, you're kind. I'm getting hungry. But God, you're, you're loving. Oh, I think I better go into confession now. That's often what praise has looked like in my life. But the words in verse seven, pour forth. That word, I will pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. That word literally means bubbles up. It's like, you know when you turn on the shower and you hold the shower head and if you try and block some of the holes in the shower, it kind of, water just gushes out of another hole. You block another hole and water just kind of comes out. You just can't stop it. It's bubbling forth. It's irrepressible. It's unstoppable. There's this cascade of praise, he's saying. It just bubbles up from within you. That's a man who is intoxicated with God. He's captivated by him. He's not going through some kind of religious ritual like I've got to praise. This is overflowing. This is from the heart because he's captivated by God, who he is and what he's done. I don't know if you noticed how many times he talks about things like wondrous works, mighty acts, awesome deeds. I mean, it just repeats it again and again and again. You think he's like, what are you on? But because when David thought of mighty acts and awesome deeds, he thought of a couple of things, because every Jew would think like this. God's awesome acts and mighty deeds were shown in creation, because God creates and sustains everything. If you look out when you walk down, and you can't see it well today, but you look out on creation, you see the handwork of someone awesome. Creation, redemption is the other thing that you would see with God's mighty acts. But I wanna just think about creation to start with, and I thought about this, but I, I don't have adequate words to describe the greatness of God in creation. I, I just don't. When it says God's greatness is unsearchable, it means you can't Google it and find the answer. You have to look at it, you have to meditate on it, you have to consider it and just look in wonder. And so that's what I'd like us to do now for a minute. There's a great video that Francis Chan, has, uh, or a pastor, has put together. And I just want to show you this. I hope the quality is okay. I want to show you this and I want you just to look at it. And I want you to think, what does this tell me about God?
Does that give us a little perspective? When it says your greatness is unsearchable, and it says God is the creator, do you begin to see why we should praise him? Because if God is that great, why is my life not more filled with praise? I narrow my life down to a very small perspective. But God is great and greatly to be praised. When you see that kind of majesty and yet, that is the God who is our God, who can create all of that. And he's not even in the picture. He's further beyond that. Doesn't that make you wonder? So I want to ask as a question, why, why would I ever think that God was my personal assistant to simply tap on my needs and supply everything that I want just for me, why would I ever do that when that is the God that we serve? I want to move on and to think about why it is that, if I'm honest, I often don't live my life with that kind of perspective. I want to talk about copy greatness. We praise what we think is great, but there is something that I call copy greatness. David says in verse three, every day I will bless you. Every day I will bless you. On your wondrous works I will meditate. And yet, how often is that true of me? Because I don't know if you ever walked down Nathan Road, in Simsar Joy, if you walk down there, you have a load of guys who every time I walk past are always saying, copy watch, copy watch, Rolex, sir, cheap price, copy watch. And I think every day we are bombarded by what I call copy greatness. Because copy whatever is always an inferior version of the real thing. It's always an inferior version of the real thing. And I get so focused on copy greatness because we've forgotten there is an original. How does this work? One of the main reasons I think I don't overflow with praise in my life is because I think the world revolves around me, to be honest. Uh, it should do. I'm great. At least, I'm so focused in my mind. I don't know if you get like this. I do. I'm just so focused in my mind. I'm wrapped up in, in the week. My mind's going all the time, revolved around my plans, the things I want to fix, the things I want to sort out in my world. And, and it kind of, everything kind of shrinks down to, to, to my little, little world that I'm trying to manage, my little problems, my things that are going on. And, and that's why I stress. That's why I fear. That's why I worry, because... I mean, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Because this, the world is kind of this, and I've got to handle it, because I've got to make sure that I'm great. And I can't even handle my own world. But I, I don't know what, what's been running through your mind this week. 
I, what's been stressing you out this week? I don't know whether it's deadlines, whether it's job decisions, whether it's kids, whether it's Pokemon Go. I don't know what it is. But how much of what stresses you out in the light of a God who really is eternal, the Bible says, everlasting, his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. That's a long time. How significant is what I stress about compared to that? But I do. Louis, Louis XIV was the greatest king of France. He proclaimed, I am the state. He, everyone had to call him Louis the Great. He was the greatest celebrity of time. He built huge palaces. I don't know if you've been to Versailles, any of you. I, I studied just outside of there for a year. Uh, it's an extraordinary place. He constructed monuments in his honor. He'd have his own TV show if he was here today. And he wanted his funeral to be as dramatic as his life was. Do you know what he did? He ordered, for his funeral, he ordered the lights in the cathedral to be dimmed. Okay. And one giant candle, like a shining star, to be placed on his coffin, which was made of gold. His gold coffin and his candle to be there so that he would be the centerpiece. He would be the one lighting up the cathedral. Because he wanted everyone to focus on him. The funeral came, the candles there, thousands were in the cathedral struck at this incredible uh, event. And the bishop, Bishop Marion, stood up to give the, the sermon. And then he did something which was not in the script. He went over to the coffin and he snuffed out the candle. And then he said these words, as the cathedral was in darkness, my brothers, only God is great. Because you see, Louis XIV had lived a lifetime trying to make himself, his things, the center of the world. Trying to make him the, 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 the main thing. And you know, in the light of true greatness, it's just snuffed out in an instant. So I don't know about you, how do you try and make yourself great? You probably don't even think about it like that. But where in your thought life are you the one who is the center of attention? I don't know if you ever daydream, but if you daydream and fantasize about the, the kind of the, the, the life you'd like to have, what you'd like to hear, have you ever noticed that you're the one who's usually the hero of the story? It's your kingdom that you're trying to build. Ever notice that? I don't daydream about everyone else getting the glory. It's always me. Why? Because I live with a copy greatness where I want the praise to come to me. When you think about your thoughts and your plans, what is the candle that you are lighting? Is it a candle to yourself or it is a candle to the one who is a floodlight, not just a little candle. Because at the end of the day, copy greatness always gets exposed as fake. Always gets exposed as fake. So now, I, I just want us to think about that. We, we, we were made for the praise of something great. 
we are the ones who try and shrink our world down to a little claustrophobic kind of center of us and our little issues. But I want to talk about, thirdly, the greatness of God's grace. The passage that we read says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The second thing that a Jew would remember when they talked about the wondrous works and the splendor of God would be redemption, God's great deliverance out of Egypt, God setting people free by his mercy and his grace. That's what a Jew would remember when he heard this. But when we live with copy greatness, we forget. We forget God's greatness in creation. We forget God's mercy in redemption. Because Basically, I think most of life, I don't actually think I'm trying to make myself great. I don't, I'm, I'm just getting on with life. Like when I was teaching, I was trying to be a good teacher. Okay, I was doing it for the student and I'd love the compliments. You know, it kind of strokes your ego when someone says, hey, you were just the, mo the most amazing teacher ever. You know, and I like that. I say, no, 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 it's fine. No, 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 but you know, really say more, please. You know, but you know, and we all like that, don't we? We all like it when someone approves of you, when someone says, kind of strokes your back and gives you a little, a little tap on the back. We all like that. But you know, I thought I was still trying to honor God in my life and trying to follow him and um, and I knew the doctrine of God's grace and all that kind of stuff, you know, but <clears throat> I'm more and more convinced now that actually much of what I do is actually more about me trying to make myself greater than I am and less about just Christ in things because I deceive myself all the time. Much of what I do is like this. Much of what I do is about showing how great my wondrous works are and wanting the praise from people around me. <clears throat> because the thing is, when you find your identity in your performance, and that's your wondrous works, what happens is, in verse 12 it says, the eyes of all look to you to give them their food at the proper time, or in due season. But when you're looking for your own greatness, you don't see God as a source of grace. The God is the source of the one who gives you everything. You think it's your hard work that got it. You think it was your performance that made it. You think that because I've been so busy, I managed to put food or whatever it is on the table. I did it. I'm not perfect, but I'm kind of great. And we don't overflow with constant praise to God because we don't see God's grace in his provision. And we live under this delusion that we are great until something happens. Failure. Failure is one of God's greatest gifts. I hate it. I hate failing. But failure is one of God's greatest gifts to expose your copy greatness and to lead you back to opening your eyes to seeing what is original and true and real greatness. Because what failure does, I, I don't know if you've experienced real failure, but when failure comes, it strips away from you everything that you had based your sense of greatness on. 
right? You know when you're made to feel that small because you made a mistake, you've done something before other people? You know, whether it's you failed in your morality, you failed in your religiosity, you failed at your work performance, you failed at being a good parent, you failed at being uh, the child that you should have been, whatever it is, when you get to that, you can feel like about that big. And it strips you of that idea that actually I was, I was pretty good anyway, right? Anyone know what I'm talking about here? J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter, in a Harvard commencement speech, she said of her failed marriage, being a single mother, and living in absolute poverty because she became famous, said, failure meant a stripping away of what was inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. How does this connect to grace and God's grace? Well, verse 14, it says, The Lord upholds all who fall. Or as one preacher put it, those who are apt to fall. The Lord upholds, that means carries, lifts up, those who are apt to fall, who fall. Why does David, in a psalm of praise, write that? Because David knows what it is to fail and to fall. You know, he was an adulterer, a murderer. He was a failure as a father. His whole family became so broken that there was rape, there was murder. His own son tried to kill him. They were just copying what he had done. I mean, he was a failure. He knew what it was to fall. And there was a shame on him. But just before David, at the same time of David, there was another king. A king called Saul. Saul also knew failure. He disobeyed. In 1 Samuel 15, God commands him to go and destroy an army, get rid of everything, don't keep anything for yourself. So what Saul does, he goes down, he defeats the whole army, but he keeps the best animals for himself. And then, and then he goes off and he builds a little monument to his own greatness. And then Samuel comes back and says, hey, what's going on here? And Saul's like, yeah, it's great. I've, come, I've obeyed God. You know, I defeated the army. And, and, and Samuel says, I'm sorry, but why have you disobeyed God? And Saul's kind of going in denial. He's saying, oh, but, but I did obey God. I did obey. The, the animals here, they're all for sacrifice to God. And, and Samuel's not having any of it. And, and, God, and Samuel says to him, um, you have disobeyed God. And then Saul's like, no, 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 it, it wasn't me. It was all my soldiers. They took it. It wasn't me. They took all the stuff. It wasn't me. And he blames them. And then Samuel says to him, hey, listen, God's going to snuff out your candle and your kingdom. And suddenly Saul is like, oops. And then he becomes, feels guilty. He's got caught. He's like an American swimmer issuing an apology. <laughs> And he says, please forgive me, but now honor me now so that all the elders will like kind of, I won't lose face in front of everybody else. Kind of, I want to have respect. I know it does something a bit naughty, but I want to keep face in front of everybody. Everything Saul did, even his own apology for his own greatness to make himself look good in other people's eyes, what David did was different. There is something that is very different between David and Saul. Because I don't know if you know, David, throughout the whole of the rest of the Bible, is called God's man. He is exalted, actually, in the Bible. 
not because he was great, but because he knew a God who was great. Saul is hardly mentioned anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. Hardly anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. Why is that? Well, when you see your failure, your sin, the mistakes that you make, you can respond in one of two ways. One will lead you either to try and keep making your own greatness great, one, the other will lead you to seeing the greatness of God. It's a key decision. You're either gonna be like David or you're gonna be like Saul. What Saul does, he denies, he blames, he tries to get out of it. He says, I'm sorry, but, do you ever do that? I do that when I get caught, I say, oh, I'm sorry, but, it was, you know, I was tired. You know, that's not an apology, okay? If somebody says, if your spouse says to you, I'm sorry, but, that's not an apology, okay? Don't accept it. Because what we're trying to do, we're trying to still defend ourselves. I wonder, have you ever lived with a fear of failure? Have you ever messed up where you're actually trying to cover up what you've done so that other people don't know. We can do this, church people are so good at this. We're experts at covering up because we've got to look good on Sunday. But all of us have elements of failure, of shame, of things inside it. There's not one person in this room who doesn't. And if you think you don't have, then I'd suggest you're probably living in denial because we desperately want other people to see that we're actually great when the reality is exposed by our failure. It's painful. I remember a friend once said to me, his, I think he was about three years old, his son, he told his son, there's some cookies on the table, don't eat the cookies. He went upstairs to do something, comes down a few minutes later, and he sees there's one cookie gone from the plate on the table and his son has disappeared. He spends the next 10, 15 minutes looking around his house, trying to find his son, can't find him anywhere. And then finally, he hears this little kind of, <clears throat> kind of coming from behind the sofa and behind the curtain, which was behind the sofa. And he kind of creeps up down, round the back, round the sofa, and there, curled up on the floor, was his three-year-old son wrapped round the curtain hiding behind the sofa. And my friend kind of looked at him like a little bit strange, like, what are you up to? And, I mean, he's only three, but, and, and, and he said to him, why are you hiding? And the son said, because I can't face you from what you've done. And that is actually what it's like for us before God. When you see a God who's that great, throughout the whole of history, every single one of us, from Adam and Eve, all the way till now, we always try and run and hide our shame, the things we, we always try to wrap that curtain around us. Because we don't wanna know, we don't want others to know what we're really like sometimes inside. Failure exposes us. We all have a secret, just think about this, we all have a secret that you don't want anyone else to know, right? 
If I was to say now, tell the person next to you the thing that you don't want them to know about you. Is anything coming to your mind? What's your secret? Because that's your shame. That's the thing you want to hide away. But David, who has such shame, how can he come to the point where he overflows with praise in this psalm while Saul is just disappears and is left in denial, his candle is snuffed out? How can that happen? Here's the thing. David, we looked at Psalm 51 a few weeks ago. I think Eric spoke on it. David realized you have a choice. You either run from God or you run to God. And David knew something about God. David knew that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David knew that. He knew that there was a God who was so great who could crush him in an instant. Who could just turn his back on him? He's got the rest of the universe to play with. Why would he care about someone so insignificantly small in the light of all of his creation? And yet, he knew, like every single one of us, that this God is not distant. This God is near to all who call to him. This God is the one who reaches down. Because you know, it says, that verse says, he upholds all who fall, he raises up all who are bowed down. Do you know if you're bowed down, how do you raise somebody else up? You have to come down to their level and pick them up. The God who created all of that universe, who didn't have to care a, a, a dot about anyone, he came down to our level. He came down to you. He knows where you're hiding. In all of that, he knows you. And he comes down, not with, you, you know, normally when you, when you do something well and other do, people do it terribly, what you want them to do, what's your response? Normally, I think what we do is we look down on people or we try and give them advice on how to improve. You've got to work harder so you can improve that skill. Do you know, have you experienced that in your office? Or you get scolded by somebody. Okay, you made that mistake, you did that wrong, don't do it better next time, right? That's how we normally treat failure. We're just critical of people. But this God, this king, is so great, he's never failed. He does everything perfectly. He gets 150% in the marks, not 100. He's beyond the scale. And here are we, insignificant, tiny, small, hiding, shameful, sinful, the Bible will call it. And yet this king came down to our level, saw you and me crouching in the shame. I don't know what it is in your life, but he sees it, and he's not there with a judging hand saying, you should do better. He's there, he comes down to our level, he dies on a cross. The scolding that we maybe deserved, he took from the Pharisees who mocked him. The criticalness, the shame, he was bowed down and humiliated on a Roman cross. For you, 
in the whole universe, he sees you right now. He sees you. He knows you. And his grace is calling you, come and enjoy the fact that I'm not a God who is distant, but I run to you and I want you to run to me. Right now, he's lavish in grace. And he calls us who are wrapped up in our puny little world to see that though we stick our middle finger up at God so often in our lives, I'd turn away if I was there. I'd say, I'd create another universe. But he doesn't. He says, I am gracious. I want you to come to me. If you get that, when you fail, if you see that God bringing you to fail, this week, if you make a mistake, you get scolded, you go into work, things go wrong, God is giving you an opportunity for two choices. You can either be like Saul and start trying to cover up everything, or you can be amazed that in spite of what you and I are like, you have a God who is gracious, and who says, I accept you, I, I delight in you, you are mine. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that and you need to run to this God. Because you see, if you get the greatness of God in those two things, his, his creation and his grace, and it sinks from here to here, you don't have to just talk about grace as an abstract concept. You will know it here and it will bubble up in praise. Just check your prayer life now. Check your praise life now because that will tell you if you have really seeing the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God in your life right now. I want to leave you with one more video. Because I want to leave you as David overflows with praise. I want to show you a modern day, somebody overflowing with praise. And I want you to just look at it. And I want you to think about whatever's going on in your week in the light of who our king really is. And I want us just to respond in praise. <laughs> 